Last week, you may recall, um, we began a series entitled, Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And uh, in that series, we began with Jesus' words that he stated in Matthew chapter 6, where he simply said, do not store up treasures for yourselves here on earth. And we looked at the question that if we honestly believe that this life is fleeting, uh, that we are only passing through this life and that we are moving toward an eternal life with Christ, then does it really make a lot of sense to spend a lot of time storing up things in a place that we don't plan to stay? And, and I think when you really think of it, that's really what Jesus is trying to, to get at. <clears throat> Now, the problem with uh, human nature is that when you talk about that kind of things, when you talk about, you know, what exactly should we store up or we shouldn't store up or how much, whatever the case may be, is we have a tendency to kind of try to compartmentalize everything and make it real simple and, and, and just generalize, kind of broad brush approach. And so we take the words that Jesus said and we tend to look at others, look at ourselves, and we look at how much we have, the quantity of things we have, the quality of things we have, and we, we kind of tend to judge people's spirituality by those things. As we mentioned last time, it's important to remind ourselves that there's nothing spiritual being poor, there's nothing unspiritual being wealthy. That's not the issue. It's never uh, simply that clear cut. But again, we kind of tend to look on appearances. I remember when I, when I graduated Bible college back in 1982, um, my parents at the time were living in the States. I was in a Bible college in Canada. They were in the States. And so for a graduation present, they bought me an ultra suede jacket. Remember those days when ultra suede was in style? I know some of you ladies had the entire suit. You know, I just had the suit jacket. Now in Canada, if I'm not mistaken, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think uh, the particular kind of coat I had went for about like $700 uh, back then. Uh, but my parents lived in the States, and they happened to find one for about 100 bucks, $125, and they gave it to me as a graduation present, and it was really, really practical because I didn't have a whole lot of suits, uh, but this particular one was kind of like a burgundy, and uh, along with that, they bought me like three or four different color pants, like it goes with gray, it goes with black, it goes with navy, it goes with you know, almost anything, you know, um, khaki, whatever, and so some ties. So really, I like had a week's supply of suits just with this one jacket. Well, without exaggeration, I probably wore that jacket three or four times when I first started in ministry. And I got so many comments from the saints. Things like, oh, it must be nice to be making the money. Or I wish I had your job. Or it looks like the board's paying you too much. Probably after the third or fourth time I wore that jacket, I just said, you know what, this is too much of a headache. Between the comments and having to explain, my parents got it for me a gift, and they only paid 100 bucks, and it was from the States, and all that kind of stuff. Instead of having to go through all that hassle of explaining that, and at that time in ministry, being young, feeling, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to offend somebody by wearing something nice. They're you know, a new believer, or someone outside the church, they're going to think, you know, it's all about money. So I basically boxed that jacket up, and I mailed it back to my father, and I said, I hope you can enjoy it, because I can't wear it. In fact, I was going to get Vanessa to bring it this morning, but I thought I don't want to go too long this morning. But my father actually gave me a ring about 15 years ago. It's a ruby ring that's set in diamonds, a gold ring. And I don't recall exactly where he got it. He had it for years, but he wanted to give it to me. He said, well, Paul, I just want you to have this. And in case, uh, you know, I pass away someday, I want to make sure that you get it. And so he gave me that ring. And you know what? I never wear that ring. As a pastor, as a preacher, I just never wear that ring, and it's for the same reason. It's a praise, 15 years ago, it was a praise about $3,000. But you know, if we're really honest this morning, what would you be thinking if I was standing here preaching with the ruby diamond ring on? You see, in fact, I've worn it a couple times, and what I do when I come to church is I turn it around so all you see is the gold. You see, it has great value to me. I could care less if it's worth 3000 or 300 It doesn't matter to me. The value is in who it came from. But you see, in Christian circles, and it's human nature outside the church as well, we have this kind of value system where we just judge things by appearances, and we kind of you know, evaluate spirituality or the lack of spirituality a lot of times by the quantity or quality of things that we possess. But you see, the issue for Jesus is never as simple as that. It's never as simple as what kind of home you live in, what part of town you live in, what kind of car you drive, where you go on vacation, whether or not you color your hair, how much money you spend on that. You see, those are not things that are important to the Lord. I really believe the issue for Jesus 
it is always one of faithfulness and of freedom. And what I mean by that in regards to faithfulness is this simple question. Whatever the Lord has given to you, however the Lord has blessed you, whatever stage of life you find yourself in and the things you may possess, do you live open-handed before God? In other words, does the Lord find you faithful so that He can pour whatever He wants into your hand, allow you to enjoy and live off the surplus of that, knowing that He's also free to move that through your life to others? Or does He know if He pours it into your hand, you will grab it and keep it for yourself? And that's why James said to the church back in that day, to the, the church in Jerusalem, he said, he said, saints, when you ask, you don't receive. Why? Because your motives are bad. You ask for things to use for your own pleasures. So in other words, the first question when it comes to our treasures is our faithfulness. Can God trust us to circulate what he gives to us, or will we consume it? That's one issue at the heart, because it's really about the heart. The second issue has to do with freedom when it relates to our treasures. And again, whatever stage of life you find yourself in, whatever income bracket you may find yourself in this morning, the question is, are you living within a financial margin that enables you to stay free financially and enables you to serve God? Or have you allowed that financial margin that God has given you? Because remember the Lord said, the one who is faithful with the little I give, I know will be faithful with much. And some of us have very little because the Lord has found we're not faithful in the little that we do have, and He loves us too much to spoil us with more. Now, Vanessa and I were watching a program last night. It was just about people traveling around the world and about, I don't know if it's a new reality show or whatever, but uh, just about you know, customs and borders and things people get in trouble in, in, the other, in other countries, trying to get to other countries. And this one young man was only 22, and I think his parents were quite wealthy, and I'm probably exaggerating. I'm trying to remember the exact details. It just came to my mind now. But uh, the Australian immigration or the Border Patrol, they had had this guy like arrested like four or five times because, you know, he comes to Australia or wherever he was to party. I mean, it was Thailand or something like that. But he, I think it was Thailand. So he goes over there, overstays his welcome, goes there to party. But because his parents are wealthy, they keep bailing this guy out. And he's just going through tens of thousands of dollars, and his parents never teach him the lesson. They never let him spend a few weeks in the Thai prison to really get with the program. They just keep bailing him out. And Jesus says, I'm not like that. I love you too much. I want to know that I can trust you, so I'm going to test you in the small things that I give to you. And what I want to know is, can you live within those parameters so that I can give you more, and your boundaries can expand, and you can touch more lives for the resources I give to you? But you see, when it comes to financial freedom, what happens in our culture, Jesus said, we said last week in Matthew chapter 6, I'll be around verse 24 or so, he says, you've got to understand that at work in your culture is not only the spirit of God, there's also the spirit of mammon. There is a world spirit that tries to bring your life into bondage in every way. It could be through anything, but finances is one of the ways that he does that. And you see, at the end of the month, the devil knows how much you have left over. He knows what you make. He knows what you have at your disposal. And what he wants to do is he wants to make sure you don't have those freedom, that financial margin, those free margins. And so he wants to get you and me caught up in all these different monthly obligations of things that we don't really need. Now, it's not that we can't enjoy a lot of things, but you understand what I'm saying. And in fact, in this day where we're extended such easy credit, we don't only live up to the margin of our income, do we? We live well beyond it sometimes. And the Lord is saying, I don't want you to get so strapped that you don't have freedom to serve God, but you become bound by the spirit of mammon. And what happens is at the end of the month, you may have lots of things. And over time, we all know that novelty wears off of all those new things. You might have lots of new things, but you also have lots of bills. And so what happens is when the bills start to come in, like after Christmas, hello, when the bills start to come in, well, then all of a sudden that peace in your home gets replaced by stress. That love and unity begins to be replaced by, by arguments, by confrontations. And the ministry that you could be doing becomes displaced by just this sense of misery. Now here's what's important to understand. If you have a nice home, if you need another home or a bigger home, and the Lord gives you permission to buy that home, enjoy it. Is that okay? Enjoy it. And in fact, leverage it, as we shared, 
for the kingdom. Use it for ministry purposes. If you need another car, if you need a newer car, or if you need a brand new car, how many understand the Lord loves to give good things to His children? There's nothing wrong with driving a nice car or a new car. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And if you get that, then drive it around and enjoy it. Don't be like me in my suede suit. Don't be like me in my ring that could buy a new car. Don't be that way. Don't let people rob you of the joy. Don't let people shut you down thinking that you're, if you're spiritual, you can't have nice things. That's never the issue. In fact, I don't know, Shane, are you here this morning? He was going to be, maybe they were away. Jerry, Jerry's Jerry, there you go. If you need a new home, we have good Christian businessmen who are, who are realtors that can put you in a nice new home exactly what you need. If you need a new car, Jerry, raise your hand. This is the man to see. You see? If you're going to get a new vehicle, sit down with somebody you can trust, somebody who's honest. The point is, it's not that we can't have treasures. It's a matter of within all the things that God has given us the ability to have, are we faithful and are we still free? That's what it's about. And what we're going to see as we talk about more of these difficult sayings that Jesus has is that what Jesus is really after is he wants to move us down this funnel to discipleship. And as he moves us down this funnel, we're going to discover there's some things that he says that are kind of blunt sometimes. They're kind of hard to take sometimes because they're going to cost us something. But what Jesus wants to do is He wants to move us from the crowd of people that profess to be followers of His. He wants to begin to cut things away in our life that actually kind of keep us away from Him and keep Him second, third, fourth, or whatever in our life. He wants to become first, and He wants us to be His disciples. That's why He speaks so bluntly, sometimes even at the risk of sounding harsh. Now, our scripture this morning is Luke chapter 14, and again, we read in verse 25 that there's a very large crowd that is following Jesus. But Jesus is not impressed by the numbers. Why? Because he knows, just like you and I would do, he knows the reasons why they're there. The majority of them are there because they heard this guy does miracles, and they want to see the miracles, just like we would. And so Jesus makes a statement that actually makes the disciples very nervous. But Jesus makes this statement because, hear me, friends, he's not looking for a crowd. He's not impressed by the crowd. He knows the fickleness of our hearts. He's looking for people who are willing to change. He's looking for people who truly want to follow him. And so what Jesus does is something that we would not do in ministry today. Jesus deliberately begins to thin the crowd out. So much so, in one occasion, the Bible says that everybody left him. Can you imagine? There are thousands around. I mean, if that was us, what would we do? We, 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 would, you know, we would make up posters and put tents up and start building programs. We gotta, look what God is doing. And Jesus knew. No, no. You see, they don't quite get yet what I'm talking about. And I think there's some of us here this morning probably who, who really don't get it either. In verse 26, Jesus turns to this crowd and he says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when I first read that years ago, I thought, what do you do with that? But we understand that when you read a particular verse in the context of all of Scripture, you begin to understand what it means. For example, here Jesus says, you are to hate your wife. And some of you guys were thinking, I'm not even going to say that. But Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives, just as Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. And then in chapter 6, the apostle Paul says to children, to young people, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with actually a promise. And elsewhere we know in the Bible, what does God say? He says, love your neighbor. He says, even love your enemies as much as you love yourself. So how do you reconcile that with Jesus saying that unless you hate your father, mother, wife, sister, brother, so on, you can't follow me? Well, the answer, of course, is that Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. Jesus is making an overstatement. I don't even want to use the word exaggeration. That's a word that we understand better. So he's kind of overstating this point, but I want us to understand that what he says is still no less radical. We can't miss that. 
You see, Jesus still wants to shock us to get our attention because there was something this crowd wasn't getting and they weren't doing. Just as I know in this crowd here this morning, there are some of us who really, we hear this, but we really don't get it. We haven't gotten it. And we're certainly not doing it. Jesus is asking this simple question. Are you willing to follow me no matter the cost? Can I suggest something this morning? If following Jesus is not costing you something, you're probably not following him. You're probably part of the crowd, but you're not yet a disciple of his. You're not really following him that closely. You see, Jesus knew the people he was talking to that day, and with the advent of, of, of global media, we have a little bit of better understanding of what the Middle East is like. So I want you to picture the Middle East and some of the radical elements of the Middle East. And I want, to picture you, I want you to picture Jesus standing in the midst of a crowd in that culture and saying this, unless you are willing to hate your mother, father, sister, brother, spouse, children, compared to me, you can't follow me. Then we begin to understand that that crowd Jesus was speaking to that day, he knew full well that there would be people in that crowd that if they chose to follow him that day, they would be disowned by their family. He knew he was talking to some women there who if they decided to follow Christ, would go home and their husbands would kick them out of the house. There would be some men who would follow Christ and the women would say, you're crazy, I'm, I'm under this marriage. You see, Jesus knew there were people who would be kicked out of the synagogues. There would people be people who would even lose their own life if they chose to follow Jesus that day. The New Living Bible translates this same verse this way. It says, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, then you must, what? By comparison, you must hate everyone else. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that you must love me more. Now, I know this still isn't sinking in. Because I don't want us to allow the fact that Jesus is using hyperbole here to take away from the radical nature of what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus wants to save you and me from what we call sticker shock. You know what sticker shock is? You go into a store. You see something nice in the window and you're interested in it. And you walk into the store and maybe it doesn't have an actual price tag on it, but you think, man, I'd love to get that. And so you go to the counter with the article, and you say, can you tell me how much this is? And they scan it, and it comes up to a zillion dollars. Right? And what do you do? Well, you don't want to look uncouth. So you kind of just absorb the shock, and you say something like, hey, well, that's really nice. You know, I've got to meet my wife, but I'll probably come back and pick it up later. Right? That's called sticker shock. And most of us who claim to want to follow Jesus, the reality is, if you truly are going to follow him, at some point in your Christian walk, you are going to experience sticker shock. You may be coasting along fine. You may feel like a Christian. You may even be a Christian. You've put your trust in the Lord. But a situation arises that reveals to you what it is really going to cost you to follow Jesus. You ever have those times? Maybe the, everything is going smoothly, and then something happens, and you know in your heart, this is one of those moments where I've really got to decide whether or not I'm going to stand for Christ. What it really means to follow Him, and you make a decision as to whether you do what the Lord says to do, or you go a different way. Now, we see that all over the world today, people who are paying the price. We also see it here at home. In fact, it certainly was the case uh, for a young lady who attends Glad Tidings. She's home in Prince Edward Island, uh, this summer working, and she'll be back in the fall as a student, but uh, the young lady's name is Jasmine, and uh, Jasmine Wong was a young lady who a number of years ago, when she gave her heart to Christ, she literally had to make a decision between Christ and her family, and we have a little clip here of her story that we're going to show you now. So growing up, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and so beforehand, I only saw Christianity as an outside view kind of thing. I saw more how you picture religion, like a very, like people go to church, people pray, people leave, people do life. Like I didn't see it as a necessity. I had no idea there was a relationship part of it. My view of Christianity was very schedule like. I couldn't see why people would want to other than the title of it, I guess. Other than just saying like, oh yeah, I go to church. I do that. 
you know. Like I said before, like I grew up in a non-Christian home, but I experienced a lot of passings in my life. So I went to church for those. First time I actually got invited to church was by a friend. It was in grade nine, and she invited me to this thing called youth convention. And I had no idea what it was. All I knew it was in Moncton. And um, all I knew at the convention at the time, I thought I was associated with like Comic-Con. <laughs> so I was like, oh no, that's so lame. <laughs> no way am I going to that. I didn't want to go because I thought it was just weird. I just did, had no idea. But um, then I got invited to a youth bonfire and we all know how well those work. <laughs> Love youth bonfires. And so I was able to go and I got to meet really cool people. And at the time I just needed really encouraging people in my life. And I found it at youth, so I started going to youth um, regularly. And then after a while, I started going to church on Sundays. And yeah, I gave my heart to Jesus at Maritime Youth Convention at Moncton, 2011. <laughs> when I became a Christian in that moment in my life, um, like I said, I grew up in a non-Christian home, so I was in that environment. Um, I went to a public school, so there wasn't any God there. <laughs> And I had a lot of non-Christian friends, so basically I was in the minority with my faith. The cost was high. <laughs> there was a lot, I had to deal a lot with people not understanding what I was doing. Um, a lot of, I guess, doubt and just tr people trying to think, you know, just shut it down. Like, oh, she's just going through a phase, like, she'll be out of it kind of thing. And just not really understanding. And it was really hard because Jesus becomes so exciting and you want to tell people about the crazy things he does, you know, but all the people you're close with don't want to hear it. And so um, it was really hard because if, for me, it felt like I was living a double life. At church and youth on Sundays, I'm me. But then at school, I'm like secular world me. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it was hard for a while. I had fights with family members because they just grew up in a culture that didn't understand Christianity, religion at all, understand the need. Um, all my friends were going partying and all that stuff, so they were out and I was home. <laughs> so I found that once I stepped into an environment where I had Christian friends, Christian education, strong Christian mentors, God was able to use me in ways that I wouldn't have been able to use, be used before. Um, I've done things that I could have never imagined, like, the person I am today is completely different from the person I was two years ago. And so it's really cool to see what can happen when you put God first and when you really take leaps of faith and don't care what people think. <laughs> Sometimes it was hard keeping up with my faith just because I was such a huge people pleaser. And um, when I wasn't pleasing people, I guess, with my new decision, it was hard. It was definitely hard at times to stick with it. But I find that my relationship with Christ is so much better because I fought for him basically, right? The cost, the initial cost is definitely high. <laughs> definitely, definitely high. But the reward is so worth it because I can see like how God shaped me in that hard time, like by me growing in faith, by me becoming stronger. I can see how it helped me enjoy right now, helped me rejoice and just be thankful. So if you truly choose to follow Jesus, we didn't understand this morning, it, it may cost you some relationships. Uh, some of you know what it is to make a stand for Christ. I don't mean in some kind of offensive, in-your-face type way, but uh, in, in a way that is gracious and loving and, and gentle and open, and yet your, your stand for Christ has actually made you lose some friends. Maybe you've uh, lost a spouse. Uh, the book of Amos says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction. And you may be here this morning because of your commitment to Christ, a spouse has walked away from your marriage. Or maybe you've lost a boyfriend or a girlfriend or some other friends. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I gave my heart to Christ. And some folks may think, well, you're only 10 years old, what do you know? I fully understood my need for a Savior at the age of 10. And I was in a Christian home, or at least a nominal Christian home, went to church on Sunday. Uh, but when I became 12, 13, 14 years of age, I began to move into very competitive sports on provincial, national levels. And so along with the sport events came all the social dynamics and pressures along with that. And there came a stage in my life, when I was about 13, 14 years of age, that I, I realized if I'm going to be serious with my walk with Jesus Christ, then that's going to have some serious consequences in my relationships. 
I realized that there would be some people who didn't want to hang around me anymore. And it wasn't because I was, I was being unkind or anything. We were just walking in a different way. Uh, there were friends that I began to lose. There were some activities that, that I wasn't getting invited to. And I even had friends that I cared for and cared for me, and we were good friends. But flipping on the other side of the coin, I had to make some difficult decisions as to who I hung with because some of my close friends were making decisions as early teenagers and older teenagers. They were making some decisions that took them in a different direction, doing different things that I knew. I, I loved them and wanted to be with them, but I just couldn't be part of that. And so even at that young age, I knew I had to make I had to count the cost of what it meant to follow Christ. And it wasn't an easy decision at the, at the time, but God was faithful. And, and, and the Lord still gave me some friends. And in fact, growing up, my best friend was a non-Christian and uh, to this day is still a friend. But um, I can remember when I graduated from college and, and went back to see my parents in Dartmouth, I actually bumped into a few of my friends from high school um, who had kind of walked away from me or maybe sometimes even mocked uh, my stand. I wasn't drinking, doing drugs, all that kind of stuff. And I actually had guys say to me, you know, Paul, uh, as a young adult now looking back, he, he said, I wish I had the courage that you had at that time. I looked at some of the decisions you made and I wished in my heart that I could have made those same decisions. I just didn't have the courage to do that. I wanted to be accepted by everybody and that was more important. So the Lord knows that relationships are very important to us, but he wants us to know that following him may cost us some of those relationships. And so the question he's asking us is, you know, are you willing to make that decision? Decisions that may put you on the oats with some of your friends. Some of your family workers, some of your classmates, some of your co-workers. You may not be on the in crowd. You may be the one who, when you come to the water cooler, figuratively speaking, people begin to walk away or the conversation changes and you feel like you're on the outside. I've been that way before. I've felt like I'm on the outside. But I can promise you this, that even though you may be on the outs because of decisions you're making in your walk with Christ, if you're faithful in walking with the Lord, there usually comes a time when those who put you on the outs begin to seek you out. When things start going wrong in their lives and they're looking for someone who actually has some wisdom, for someone who has some strength to stand, who lives in a different way and who offers different options. But it all begins with counting the cost and answering this simple question. And friends, whatever your temptation may be, whatever it is you'd rather do, whatever you'd, you'd rather hang around with, whatever, the question is simply this, what does it mean to you to follow Jesus? It's that simple. We can justify, we can explain away, we can give a reason for anything you want to do, but at the end of the day, what does it mean to you to follow the Lord? Jesus went on to say in verse 28, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In other words, Jesus is asking us the question this morning, and I want to narrow this down a little bit as we come to a conclusion in a few minutes. He's asking this question, is there anything, is there anyone that means more to you than me? And in fact, don't miss this. This is what Jesus is saying to the crowd, and he's saying to us, if there is, you've got to consider this, because there's no point in you starting down this journey of discipleship. There's no point in you committing your life to me if I'm not first. I, I, Jesus is saying, I'll save you the trouble. Don't do it. Don't waste your time. It's all in vain. Because if I'm not where I need to be in your life, whatever your commitment may be in your own mind, the reality is you'll start down this path, but you won't finish it. So do yourself a favor, sit down and count the cost. The cost extends far beyond just family dynamics. And in fact, you may be thinking this morning, well, Pastor, I'm fine. You know, it doesn't really apply to me, this message, because I'm a Christian, I'm in a Christian home, I'm surrounded by Christian friends, I have Christians at work, whatever the case may be, and so I don't really have to worry about putting them before Jesus. But the question is this, are you willing to make Jesus first above all? Above all. Now hear me this morning. Are you willing to place Jesus before your career? Are you willing to place Jesus before your pursuits? Before your pleasures, before the things that you may feel you're entitled to. We live in an entitled society. Jesus says, are you willing to place me before those relationships, before those pursuits, those investments, those purchases, those possessions, whatever it may be, are you willing to place me before those things that you believe you're entitled to? And you may still get them, but are you placing them before me or are you placing me 
before them. What Jesus is talking about here is a unique relationship that you have with Him that you don't have with anything or anyone else. And when you put it that way, let me ask you this morning, what comes to your mind? That you would say, Paul, if I'm really honest this morning, Jesus is not before this thing or this person. And you may think like, this is just general talk, pastor. Yeah, we've heard this yada, yada, yada a dozen times before. Let me tell you something. If there is anything in your heart or life, if it's a person, a thing you own, a convenience, a pleasure, whatever it may be, it is more important to you than Jesus, I promise you this. When that thing, when that person is threatened or taken away, it will cause you to turn away from Jesus. It will cause you to shake your fist at God. It may even cause you to deny Him. And we see it time and time and time again. The Lord reveals through circumstances that certain things or people are more important. And we see it all the time, people walking away from the Lord because He just did not keep their life on, on track as they wanted. But He wasn't really first. One of the metaphors the Bible often uses to describe this unique relationship that we have with the Lord is that of marriage. When you choose to get married, you are choosing a unique relationship for life with one person that you are not going to have with anybody else on the face of this earth. When we entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what were we saying? We are saying, Jesus, I trust you to be my Savior. Now, we don't really weigh on what we're saying, but here's what we're saying. Jesus, in, in committing my life to you as my Savior, I am saying that I do not put my trust in anything that I am, anything that I do, I don't put my trust in my church membership. I don't put my trust in whether my good things outweigh my bad things. I put my trust uniquely and solely in what you did on the cross to take my place, take my punishment, to forgive my sins, to bring me back to God, and to guarantee my eternal life in heaven. I'm trusting you alone as Savior. But not only, Lord, am I trusting you as Savior, I am trusting you as my Lord and my Master. And here's where the problem comes. Because if I truly trust Jesus as my only master, then I am looking to Him for truth. I don't care what the media says. I don't care what trend or fad is ruling today. I don't care when it comes to morality what the Supreme Court says. I know what Jesus says. I believe His truth. And when push comes to shove, even at the cost of my popularity, even at the cost of my own life, I will say, Lord, help me stand for You. Friends, that's what it means. And it's so easy to say, but let me ask us this morning, can you think of any time this week that you denied Christ? You may not have verbally said that, but by not saying anything in that conversation around the cooler, in being sheepish, in stepping back, in nodding in agreement so that you don't stand out, what are you doing? You are saying these people, these things come first. Jesus comes distance. For Jesus to be first. That's why Peter says, be ready always to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and meekness. He's not saying we have to be offensive, but by the very nature of the light that is in us, it offends the darkness. But are we making a stand for the Lord despite what it might cost us because we have a unique relationship with Him? We look to Him as our Master. He is the supreme authority in our lives. Every thought, every feeling, every fad, every worldview is judged through what Jesus says is right or wrong. Hear me, friends. Uh, and if it doesn't sink in, Go on the website this week and play it over and over again because I have rehearsed this over and over again in my own heart and my own mind this week. Jesus is not interested in competing with other love interests in our lives. Hear me, saints. We can convince ourselves that He's okay with it, but I'm here to tell you, He is not. And you are only fooling yourself. Jesus is not interested in being just one of many lives. Now, I don't say this to be facetious, but let this sink in and think of this question. How do you think my wife, Vanessa, honey, would you just stand for a moment if anybody doesn't know you? This is my wife. You can just turn around. I mean, isn't she a beautiful woman? Thank you, honey. I'll get it when I get home now. But if, how do you think she would respond if I went home one day and said, honey, I got some good news and bad news? She would say, well, give me the bad news first. I would say, the bad news is 
I have three other love interests in my life beside you. What could possibly be the good news? Well, the good news is I like you best. Now, if you know my wife, she would say very lovingly and graciously, well, then I hope you enjoy your other three love, you know, love interests because you're not going to enjoy me. Friends, let us sink in for a minute because regardless of what we think, regardless of what kind of religious structure we have in our mind that we have fabricated, Jesus is no less serious. He says, no, you can believe in me. You can profess to believe in me all you want. You can go to church and you can even pray and all that kind of stuff. But I see your heart. I know who's first. I know who's not. Don't tell me you love me. Don't tell me you're a follower of mine. Don't tell me you're a disciple of mine if I am long somewhere on the list of these other love interests that you have. Or when push comes to shove and the heat gets turned up a little bit, I'm the first one that you discard. You see, the Lord isn't saying that you can't love people. You just can't choose them over Him in any way. He isn't saying that you can't love your job, that you can't have goals, you can't have financial goals, you can't have things that you enjoy enjoy doing and pursuing. He's just saying you can't push Him aside when you feel like it to advance your goals. Or you can't ignore Him when He was saying, I've given you this to use, and you say, well, I'm going to use it on myself. I deserve this, I deserve that. The Lord says, no, you can't, you can't do that and claim that I'm your master. Mammon is your master. You can't be one thing in church and another thing on the job. Jesus is demanding nothing less than wholehearted, exclusive commitment to Him. I spoke to a lady a number of years ago. It was during a service, and she came up, responded to the altar call. She was standing at the altar, and she was very sincere. She had tears streaming down her face. She said, Pastor, I want to commit my life to Christ. I want to be a Christian. But I have to ask you before I do, if I commit my life to Jesus, will I have to give up dancing? Now, I thought, how silly that anybody would, you know, some of the silly barriers, and this is going back like 20 years ago, but some of the silly barriers that we kind of have that people would think this, you know, automatically these five things I can't do if I'm a Christian. We know it's not as simplistic as that, but I'm not saying right or wrong for dancing, but, but what I thought was even more silly was this woman's question that she would ask me, Pastor, I'm struggling. Do I give my life to God who became man, who died a horrendous, torturous death on a cross and laid his life down for me so that I would not have to go through that punishment under God's wrath, but could be forgiven, could know God, and could live forever? I'm struggling. Do I commit myself to that or do I give up dancing? Now, hear me, friends, in all seriousness, I don't know what the Lord is going to ask you to give up if you truly are going to be His disciple. He may ask you to give up dancing. He may ask you to stop eating broccoli for the rest of your life. He may ask you to never wear ugly shirts again. You know, whatever it is, I don't know what it's going to be. But it boils down to this. If you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you going to trust Him enough to obey Him. That's what Jesus is asking. To be number one in your heart, to be number one in, in every day, every situation, when push comes to shove, it's going to boil down to trust. And what He's asking us is, are you going to trust me? Or is there always going to be something else in front of me that you're going to choose over me? If so, you've got to understand, you can't be my disciple. You, no matter what you think in your mind, you're not one of mine. In fact, didn't Jesus warn elsewhere in Scripture? He said, many people will say on that day, Lord, did we not? And what's he talking about? They're going to talk about all the things according to their value system that God should be impressed with. And Jesus is going to say this, don't know you. Sorry. Who are you? You see, the shepherd knows his sheep. The Lord knows his disciples. He said, I know those who are mine. I don't know you. And on the other side, of course, you don't know me. You don't know me. What or who is more important to you than truly following Jesus? How many remember the Rubik's Cube? You're all showing your age now. The Rubik's Cube was the most popular toy ever sold in history. What was unique about the Rubik's Cube 
is you didn't have to know much. You could just look at it, at the puzzle, and realize it needs to be solved. You know, it's not lined up. On the other side, without instructions, you had no clue how to solve it. And I have no clue how to do a Rubik's Cube. I was going to bring one, but I just embarrassed myself. So I went on YouTube. And one of the points YouTube makes is this. To solve the Rubik's Cube, you have to find the one square, the one small square, that is where it's supposed to be. And then you've got to take that one small square, move it out of place, put everything else there, and then bring that one small piece back to the place that only it can hold, and you've got to solve. And I kind of think that describes our walk with Christ when the Lord is talking about priorities here. He's basically saying this. You've got to understand, you look at your life, and it's kind of all mixed up. And you say, how do I get it together? How do I function properly? How do I live a fulfilling life? How do I make life work, marriage work, kids work, whatever the case may be? And Jesus says, though it goes countercultural to what you're told in your society, you've got to get all those things out of my way. What you've got to do is take all those things that are kind of in the center of your priority, your focus, you've got to be willing to lay it aside. You've got to put Jesus in the only place that he can be. And then the other places come back into place. And the puzzle is solved. What does that mean? It means some of us here this morning, we have families that are dysfunctional. But one of the problems is, we're trying to address problems in a way where Jesus is in the center. He's not the center of your life. You know, there's no point in trying to get your kids straightened up if you don't read the Word of God yourself. Can I just you know, let you know the secret? If you don't have a prayer life, don't expect your kids to have a prayer life. Don't expect them to have a, a, a hunger for the Lord. You know, I mean, God, by His grace, it can happen, but friends, it's not. What you've got to do is you've got to get those things that you worship. It may be your ego. It may be your career, your objectives, your possessions, whatever the case may be. You've got to get those things out of the way. Put Jesus where only Jesus is supposed to be. Bring the other things back into place, and you'll discover that those other things actually function better when Jesus is where Jesus is supposed to be. You see, Jesus is not against you loving your family. He's against your family being your God. But you see, when He's your God, it's amazing how He can bless your family. Uh, the Lord's not against your career. He's not against prosperity, all that kind of stuff. But you see, when those things keep you away from Him, when you're too busy that you can't be alone with God, you don't have time to pray, you're too stressed to worship, to be in the Word, you've you, you got to miss church because I work so hard all week that I, you know, I just got to get away on the weekends. When, when your priorities are all mixed up like a Rubik's Cube, you're just going to get burned out. You're always going to be empty. But if you put Jesus first, it is absolutely amazing how the Lord is able to bless you and the Lord is able to prosper you. And the, 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 the analogy goes on and on and on. Francis Frangipan wrote these words. He said, how easy it is to blame others for our unhappiness. But we are only unhappy when something other than Christ has become our life. And that's the truth. I was talking to a friend this week. He's actually a big fan of Francis Frangipan. He said this. He said, I was reading one of the books and Francis gave his testimony. He said, when I started early in my ministry, I only had a handful of people. But, but he said, I was just absolutely dependent on God. And the first five or six hours of the morning, from six o'clock to about noontime, I would just spend in God's presence, whether it was just going for a walk, reading the Word, meditation, prayer, whatever. And over the years, the church grew to thousands. Well, with all the new demands of that growing, thriving church, he said, my time with the Lord began to decrease as my responsibilities increased. He said, one day a Christian brother came up to me and said, Pastor, he said, would you be offended if I share something with you that I believe God gave to me to give to you? And Francis said, no, by all means, you know, if you have a word from the Lord. He said, I was in prayer the other day, and he said, the Lord told me to tell you this. He said, my message to you is simply this. The Lord said, tell Francis, I miss him. I just miss him. And that so convicted Francis that that Sunday he stood before his congregation, he shared what had happened, and he told his congregation, listen, I know you all want a piece of me, I know you've all got things, you know, I need to be here and there and the other thing, but you know what, I'm just going back to that time I had with the Lord. You're not going to see me as much during the week as you used to see me, I hope you're okay with that, I'm just going to be spending time with the Lord. You know what happened to that large congregation? Everybody stood and gave him a stand ovation. We understand that need. Abraham had prayed for a son all his life. God promised Abraham a son. 
God gave him a son, but God also knew this. God knew the human tendency when he gives us something so precious that we love and long for. He knows the human tendency to begin to place that gift before the giver. So God says to Abraham one day, Abraham, I want you to take your son. And he emphasizes this clearly for us to understand. I want you to take your son, your only son. And I want you to travel a long distance to Mount Moriah and I want you to offer him there as a sacrifice, proof of your devotion for me. I don't know if, if Abraham wrestled through the night. I have no idea. What I do know, the Bible says that early the next morning he rose up. No hesitation. Rises up, takes his son with him, travels a long distance, straps up his son, lays him on this altar. He is just about to thrust the knife through his son's body and kill him. In fact, if you did your Bible reading this week, you'd remember in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that Abraham was so convinced in God's faithfulness and so trusted God that he knew that even if he killed his son, God was able to resurrect him. You see, Abraham knew what God was saying. Abraham knew God's heart and he knew God's promise. He said, I don't know what God has in mind. I just know this. God said, this is my son. I'm going to have children after him as numerous as the sand, the, uh, sand on the seashore. And so if, if I kill him, God must be raising him up. Just about his plunge his knife in, what does God do? He spares Abraham's son. He says, you've proven your, your faithfulness to me, and the rest is history. What do we learn? Abraham teaches us that when you place God first, not only does everything else fall into its place, but all of the promises of God to you are fulfilled. All that God has for you will come to pass. The next lesson we learn is this. 2,000 years later, God, John 3.16, because he loved the world, took his son, his what? Only son, and he bound him, and he did not spare him, and he nailed him to a cross. Isaiah says it actually pleased God the Father to crush his son, not because he didn't love his son, but because of his love for you and me. Now, do you realize this? What was Mount Moriah called in the days of Jesus? It was called Mount Calvary, Golgotha. 2,000 years after Abraham said, God, there's nothing in this world that's more important to you than me. Here's my son. 2,000 years later, on the identical hill, God the Father says to you, there's nothing more important to me than you. I won't spare my son. I will freely give him up for you, that your sins might be forgiven, that the plans I have for you might be fulfilled. Isn't that an amazing God? And so when Jesus says, unless you're willing to put everything else behind me and me first, I'm just telling you up front, don't just save your breath. You can't follow me. You're going to fall away. It's not going to work. The reason he has the right to ask that question was because thousands of years before, 2,000 years ago, what did he do? He said the same to us. I'm putting you first. I'm demonstrating my love for you in that I'm laying down the life of my son. And ask Pastor Kristen to join me as we close this morning. Friends, as Christians, we need to remember as we live in this secular culture, that the very things that keep people from ever following Jesus are the same things that will cause you to drift away from Jesus. So we need to keep asking ourselves, what thing, what person has become more important to me than Jesus? That's a tough question. But it's a question that we need to answer. Because every day, in some way or another, we have the opportunity, the temptation to deny Christ, to put something else first in place of him. And the problem with that is God is never free to fulfill his promises toward us. He's never free to be Lord in our lives and over our lives. And we just keep our nose to the grind and life wears us down. Where Jesus said, I've come to give you a fullness of life. Would you bow your head this morning? I'm going to ask the ministry team if you'd come, if you're able to slip out from the aisle that you're in, just to come and stand. We close our service if you're visiting with us. Just give you the opportunity to receive prayer if that's your heart's desire. And we invite you to do that this morning as well before you leave. But every head is bowed. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed.
I just want to take 15 seconds and just ask you this simple question. If you're here this morning, you would say, Pastor, I have never placed Jesus first in my life. I don't know him. I don't know him, but I want to know him this morning. I want to open my heart to him being Lord of my life. I want to surrender my life to him and to his love and all that he has for me. If you've never made that decision before, if you say, I want to make it this morning, would you just lift your hand to indicate to me, yes, Pastor, I want to give my life to Christ this morning. Is there anybody at all? We may all know the Lord here this morning, but I want to give you opportunity in case. Just slip your hand up real quick before you leave this morning. Are there any believers here this morning who would say, yeah, there are things in my life that are more important than Jesus? No matter what I say, I know in my heart of hearts, when push comes to shove, I know the choice I would make. I want to invite us this morning as believers to just allow the Holy Spirit to identify and realign those things in our lives. And one of the ways that we actually put Jesus first, beyond just our words and expressing our desire, is when we get up tomorrow and there's no music playing, nobody else around us, we look for time to spend with the Lord. We look for time to open His Word. It may be one scripture, it may be one chapter, it may be three or four chapters. Maybe time of prayer, a time of worship, whatever the case may be. It's just a time that we say, Lord, before I move into this day or as I move through this day, I'm just realigning my life to ask you to be first. Give me strength to be a witness for you, put you first in all things. But if there's anything in your way, Lord, I renounce it, I repent of it. Because I want the fullness of your promises for me, for your glory in my life. I want the fullness of those promises for me and for my family and all that's important to me. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you ask nothing of us that you have not done for us a hundredfold. And you laid down your own life, and we may never have to do that, but I suspect some of us will one day soon. And I just pray, Lord, that you'll continue to move us down that funnel today, through this week, as we meditate upon your word. Move us down that funnel where all the things that are weights are cut off, and all that remains is you and our love for you and everything else in its proper place and your blessing and your anointing upon our lives, that we may truly be your disciples. So I pray that your word abide in each heart, and I pray the things that have come to our mind that we've offered to you this morning, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would seal those things, we would not forget them when we leave, continue to work on those things in our heart, in our lives this week as we spend time with you. Jesus be Lord of all, for your glory, and Lord for our joy and fulfillment and fruit. We give ourselves to your precious name.